Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Michael Kugelman. He's Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. He's a leading specialist on India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan and their relations to the United States. He's edited or co-edited 11 books and has written for numerous prestigious publications about this region. He also has been interviewed about this area by major media outlets from around the world. He talks with us today about the most recent conflict between Pakistan and India. Let's look at what's happened in the last couple of weeks, and can you put into perspective for us uh, the India-Pakistan conflict that we've seen? Now, I know that it's part of a much longer conflict, but what prompted this encounter? Well, this crisis goes back to uh, Valentine's Day uh, this year when there was a uh, an attack on Indian security forces in India-administered Kashmir. It was an attack that killed uh, more than 40 Indian uh, paramilitary forces. It was the deadliest attack in India-administered Kashmir for many years, and it was the deadliest attack on Indian security forces in many years. And the attack was claimed by a a uh, terrorist organization that is based in Pakistan. Uh, and essentially, those factors, the, the scale of the attack, the death toll, and also the fact that it was openly claimed by a group that is based in Pakistan with ties to the Pakistani state, uh, that made it all but ine- inevitable that there was going to be a crisis and that India was going to retaliate, which is exactly what it did. Uh, it launched a strike in Pakistan, uh, airstrikes in Pakistan. And then Pakistan responded with its own strike uh, in India. And this marked the first time since 1971 when both of these countries used airstrikes on each other's soil. Uh, and that was a, a war that the two countries fought back then. And uh, very significantly, it was well before either country had nuclear weapons. So basically, this is the, this crisis that's unfolded out here is the first time that India and Pakistan have exchanged uh, airstrikes on each other's soil in the nuclear era, or when both India and Pakistan had been nuclear states. So bottom line is it's, it's pretty significant, pretty serious. Last Friday, uh, Pakistan, who uh, had captured one of the downed pilots, uh, returned that pilot. Um, some observers I've read in the news have indicated that that was their way of uh, de-escalating this. Would you agree? 
Yeah, I would agree that Pakistan's decision to release this uh, Indian pilot that had detained just a little bit before uh, really created the path for de-escalation. Uh, essentially, it uh, it put an off-ramp out there that allowed the two sides to, to take um, to wind things down. Uh, and, you know, I would argue that Pakistan, um, and despite the uh, deep tensions with India um, and despite the, uh, the ill will and all, Pakistan had a very strong interest in not taking this crisis any further, um, just because, for one thing, Pakistan is uh, uh, does not have the conventional military power that India does. India's military is much larger, uh, much more powerful. And also, Pakistan is actually going through a significant economic crisis. So I think there would have been reason, the, Islam, the uh, officials in Islamabad would have been very concerned about fighting a war, even a low-grade conflict, given this major balance of payments crisis that Pakistan has been suffering through for quite some time. Now, uh, there is an election coming up in India within this coming year. Uh, how did India's response uh, play into the political picture in India? Yeah, well, it, it certainly is important when thinking about this crisis that's unfolded between these two countries. It's very important to keep the domestic political context in India in mind, because you're right, uh, India has national elections scheduled to take place several weeks uh, from now. And, um, uh, you know, in India, uh, you simply get a lot of political mileage and a lot of political advantages be, by being tough on Pakistan. It simply plays well on the campaign trail to talk tough about Pakistan. So, you know, in that regard, uh, is sort of one more reason why it was all but inevitable after India suffered that uh, that terrorist attack in India-administered Kashmir it made it inevitable that India was going to have to do something militarily. Uh, it would have been quite um, a liability, a political liability for the ruling party um, to simply sit on its hands and do nothing, um, given that it could really suffer politically for that, including at the polls. And I would also argue that uh, India uh, has had uh, a strong incentive to keep up the tough rhetoric and the tough talk, uh, even after it has decided not to launch additional military strikes in Pakistan. It's continued to talk very tough and, you know, essentially suggests that it's it's a country that's not going to be uh, trifled with and that it's uh, a country that's, you know, going to remain strong in the face of Pakistani provocations. This is all for political impact. Uh, you know, the, the last thing you want to do, if you're, you know, the ruling party, the ruling political party in India, the last thing you want to do is appear to be going soft on Pakistan um, when you're so close to uh, to elections, as India is now. This may be a naive question, but is that why they opted for airstrikes immediately instead of the traditional sort of ground forces or artillery? No, I, I don't think so. I think that um, given what happened with this uh, with this attack uh, you know I, I emphasize that this is the uh, this attack on indian security forces in india administered kashmir on february 14th it was the deadliest one of the deadliest attacks uh, on security forces in india and also one of the deadliest attacks in kashmir in many years so given the scale of the attack it doesn't really matter if there had been an election coming up several weeks later. I think that India would have responded anyway. Uh, and there is a precedent here. Back in 2016, uh, there was, again, an attack on Indian targets that killed um, 
a, a few dozen, or actually a bit less than a few dozen Indian security personnel, and that provo- that led India to stage um, limited strikes along the border, uh, along the disputed border with Pakistan. So unlike this most recent strike, it didn't involve flying planes in on, deep onto Pakistani territory. It was simply a, uh, a lightning strike along the border uh, with Pakistan. So India's government showed that it was willing to respond militarily to after there are terrorist attacks on its soil. Um, and, you know, there was no election happening at all back in 2016. So I don't think we, we certainly, the, the election factor is important to consider here because, again, if you're India, you don't want to appear to be going soft on Pakistan because that could really uh, cause you some suffering at the polls, so to speak. But I don't think we should overstate the election factor, too. I mean, the attack itself was so traumatic and the scale was so high, the death toll was so high, that I think that those are the factors that made India decide that it had to launch this major, uh, or that it had to launch this airstrike into Pakistan. I know that much of this is over the area of Kashmir, and, and much of this has gone back to the uh, original partition back in the, the, the late 40s. Could you place in context for us, Michael, some of the the history of this as contested region? Uh, and and also, it's not homogeneous, right? This this area is, uh, has different groups of people with different loyalties within the same region. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Kashmir is a very – it's not just a very fraught region, but it's a very complex complicated uh, region. Uh, and you go back to the history, uh, you know, as you, as you suggested, you know, India and Pakistan became independent countries in, in 1947 uh, in, in an event known as Partition, which was incredibly bloody and killed several million people. You know, effective, essentially, you know, the area that had been um, uh, Britain's colonial India uh, was split. It was partitioned. Uh, and the way that um, it was split into two different countries, India, Pakistan, was that the it was on, along religious lines. Uh, the Muslim majority parts of what had been British India became Pakistan, and the Hindu majority parts of what had be, been British uh, India became India. But Kashmir was the exception. Kashmir is a region that is Muslim majority, um, but it did not work out uh, because of, of some complicated political factors on the ground. Um, Kashmir did not become part of Pakistan. Instead, there was essentially, you know, a compromise. I mean, after a, lot, a tremendous amount of bloodshed and, and terrible things, uh, what happened is sort of uh, in the end is that um, Kashmir itself was split into two parts. Um, you had India. A part of Kashmir became administered by Kash- by India, which today is known as Jammu and Kashmir, and then the other part of Kashmir um, is. Over is administered by Pakistan, but the reality of the matter is that both countries, both India and Pakistan, claim the entire uh, Kashmir region, and this is really the the uh, the crux of the matter. Uh, that you know, neither side has been willing to compromise. India has long uh, claimed that um, you know there's nothing to negotiate; that things are just going to stay as they are. Pakistan has has insisted on saying, "Well, we need to." 
we need to have a discussion. We need to try to renegotiate the, the future status of Kashmir. India has not been interested in that. Um, and so that's where we are today. I mean, there have been some efforts in the past um, on the part of some very courageous Indian and Pakistani leaders to propose some type of blueprint for a dialogue that could lead to some sort of resolution. But they've never gotten very far. And I think given how high tensions are and given how deep the ill will is between the two countries now, I think we've never been further away from being in a position where we could launch some sort of process to resolve this long, festering uh, challenge. There is a group of people within Kashmir also, correct, that, that sort of want independence? They don't want anything to do with India or Pakistan? Yeah, and this is a big component uh, of the story here that, um, you know, for many years, uh, Kashmiris in Jammu and Kashmir, the India-administered part of Kashmir, have uh, resented uh, not being independent or part of Pakistan, and they do not want to, they don't want to be a part of India, uh, and that has led to some uh, rebellions, including some violent rebellions, and as well as some terrorist attacks, including authorities in India. And India has tended to respond in a very heavy-handed fashion. Uh, you know, violent crackdowns, uh, you know, just terrible things have happened to Kashmiris on the ground, and this has sort of led to this vicious cycle of, of violence and unrest, including radicalization. Uh, you know, the young man that, that uh, drove the, uh, his car into this convoy of Indian paramilitary forces back on February 14th. He was a he was a young man. He was a local, um, and according to his parents, he had been radicalized, became a militant after um, he was beaten up by several Indian policemen in in Kashmir. So, you know, this is a delicate matter, and you know, Indian the official Indian side is would go against this. The official Indian side would say, no, no, we don't have anything to do with the fact that you have all this unrest in in Kashmir. It's it's Pakistan stirring uh you know, stirring the pot, causing trouble from across the border by covertly providing support and arms and other types of assistance to these young uh Kashmiri rebels and it has nothing to do with us. I think the truth is somewhere in between, as always. But uh, yes, as you say, um many Kashmiris um do not they you know they would much prefer to be independent or they would much prefer to be a part of uh, of Pakistan, which is not something that India wants to hear. <laughs> we'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward, 
This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. What role does the United States play in all of this? I mean, we hear this, and, and quite frankly, most Americans uh, could care less uh, at, at first blush, unless they really dig into it or have a particular interest in this area. Now, obviously, both parties being uh, nuclear uh, countries, that, that certainly makes a difference. But, but why should America be interested in this region? Well, I think you're very right that, uh, you know, the United States, uh, well, uh, Americans, both official, the government, as well as just Americans on the whole, don't really focus that much on, on this part of the world. And I think the biggest reason why it's important for the U.S. to focus more in, on this region is that it's a nuclear flashpoint. Uh, you know, there is no other example in the world, so far as I know, of two bitter rivals living next door to each other and also having nuclear weapons. And that's exactly what you have with India and Pakistan. And, um, you know, the, the crux of their dispute is over, uh, is over Kashmir. Um, you know, U.S. Uh, officials have often said that their main interest um, in South Asia is stability. Uh, and certainly you could talk about Afghanistan as being one of the biggest sources of instability in South Asia. But the India-Pakistan dispute, including Kashmir, is also a major uh, source of, of instability. And, um, you know, unlike Afghanistan, uh, you know, you've got nuclear weapons as well. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. has actually taken its, its, its role in the India-Pakistan dispute has been very interesting over history. Typically, the U.S. has sort of taken a pretty hands-off role and sort of encouraged both sides to try to talk and work out their problems. It hasn't really been really hands-on, except reactively when there's a major crisis or a war. Uh, so the U.S. has indeed played a mediating role when the Indians and Pakistanis have, have fought in wars. Uh, you know, very interesting, back in 1999, um, <clears throat> there was a conflict called the Kargil Conflict in which um, Pakistan-backed forces entered India-administered Kashmir and then India tried to repel them by launching airstrikes on them. And so there was a lot of concern here in Washington in those days uh, about some sort of major escalation, to the point that many within the U.S. government worried that Pakistan could um, consider deploying nuclear weapons. And this was in 1999. It was right around the time when Pakistan and India became formal official nuclear weapon states. And so at that point, once you had this fear that um, you, know, you could very well have a nuclear exchange on the subcontinent. This is when President Bill Clinton um, made a very strong intervention uh, on both sides, particularly with the Pakistanis, and he essentially convinced the Prime Minister of Pakistan, who was Nawaz Sharif at the time, to step back, uh, and that's exactly what happened. So what I'm trying to say here is that the U.S., even though it's sort of not taken on a very direct role in this dispute, it has gotten very involved when things are very bad. Now, you can argue, you know, it doesn't seem to be very effective to have a reactive policy like <laughs> right. that. Why not try to do more earlier to try to preempt the possibility of things getting worse? But that 
typically has not happened. Why that is, I don't know. It could be other priorities. Um, it could be uh, a variety of factors. But that's basically how things have played out. Uh, and I do think that uh, this is a, given how dangerous this rivalry is between India and Pakistan, I, I do think there's something to be said for having more uh, sustained international engagement to try to mediate the dispute so that it does not spiral out of control. I know that uh, President Clinton back at that time made made some statements that uh, in retrospect that, that this was one of his biggest problems and one of his biggest concerns uh, and that he had to get the, the parties to back down in some form. So I know there was a lot of concentration on it at, at that time. That being said, uh, if we look – today, and and this is not a a partisan statement, but if you look today and you look at the Middle East uh, and and South Asia, some observers would say that our foreign policy in that area is sort of ad hoc and uh, not very cohesive or coherent. do you see that in relationship to Pakistan and, and India, or how would you evaluate uh, the U.S. foreign policy in this region under the Trump administration? Well, you know, it's it's a good point. Um, you know, the Trump administration did announce a South Asia policy um, uh, in August of 2017, and. Um, the interesting thing about the South Asia policy it was described as a South Asia policy, but it was really about Afghanistan uh, and and not much else. I would argue that uh, you know the U.S. <clears throat> not just the Trump administration, but right. previous administrations as well, really haven't had a very coherent um, policy. I think they uh, no sort of broader. Uh, consideration of South Asia as a as a broader region, but more so there have been policies focused on individual countries in the region. So, for example, what we've seen with Trump and before Trump is um, efforts to build and deepen uh, a defense partnership with India. This has been a policy in place since the early 1990s, um, and that's gone quite far. Uh, I'd argue that the, the the U.S. relationship with India is actually deepening. Uh, in a big way, whereas it's been much more complicated and difficult to work with the relationship with Pakistan. The U.S. and Pakistan were actually fairly close during the Cold War, during the early decades of the Cold War, but they've drifted apart in more recent decades, particularly as the U.S. became increasingly frustrated that um, Pakistan had terrorists on its soil that were staging attacks in Afghanistan on U.S. troops, and Pakistan was not doing anything about them. And so that's a relationship that struggled. Um, but I think for the United States, uh, certainly in the Trump era, and really going back to the George W. Bush administration, Afghanistan has been the main focus of U.S.-South Asia policy. Initially, you know, fighting a war there, and then more recently trying to figure out a way to um, launch a, a peace process to, to end the war there. So I would certainly contend that there really has never been any type of coherent U.S. policy on South Asia, and that it is done on a fairly ad hoc basis, with the exception of this long-standing focus on, on India and the, the desire to really build that relationship out. There's really, it really is fairly incoherent, uh, I would say. Build that relationship out as far as uh, I would assert military uh, relationships, but yet we just had this week, just two days ago, President Trump 
announcing that he plans to scrap the uh, preferred trade partner status of, of India uh, as part of his tariff plan. How does that play into all of this, or does it? No, that's a, that's a good point. I think that uh, you know that decision to scrap the GSP um, preferences that that's a pretty big blow to U.S. India relations. But it's not going to be a, any sort of devastating blow, and that's because uh, you know uh, there has been tensions on the economic side of the U.S. India relationship. Uh, you know, each side has accused the other of being overly protectionist. You know, I've oftentimes described the economic side of the U.S. India relationship as the Achilles heel. It's sort of the weak spot. But, you know, the defense side is so strong. There's so many convergent interests. There have been so many uh, uh, deals, and arms, uh, sales types arrangements over the last two years that, you know, the, the U.S.-India uh, defense partnership will be able to weather this blow to the economic side of the relationship, and it'll continue to grow more. And I think that this actually has implications for the question of what role the U.S. should play in this India-Pakistan dispute, because, you know, historically, Pakistan has welcomed U.S. mediation in the dispute for reasons that I mentioned earlier, right. just because, you know, Pakistan wants to bring outsiders in to encourage the two sides to talk about issues, including Kashmir, which was what Pakistan wants. However, if Pakistan starts to see the United States as increasingly closer to India, then I think Islamabad could start questioning how credible uh, or suitable or neutral a mediator the United States would be when it comes to the India-Pakistan uh, dispute. I don't think we're there quite yet, but sort of down the road, a few years down the road, if everything else remains constant, I think that could become a very real issue. One, one more area on the, this trade uh, question, and that is, do you have any sense, Michael, how this will play into the upcoming election in India? Will it have any influence whatsoever? And if it does, does that have any impact on the Pakistan-India conflict? I don't think it will. Uh, I mean, it's it's a notable development for U.S.-India relations, but the, the election in India, uh, you know, the major themes certainly are the Pakistan issue the India-Pakistan dispute. Um, and beyond that, certainly uh, certain types of, uh, of, of economic uh, matters, but not those bearing on you know, trade relations with the United States and, and that type of thing. We're talking more about things like rising unemployment, which had been a big um, uh, vulnerability area for the for the Indian government because, you know, it came to power with a big mandate to launch a series of economic reforms, and instead, unemployment has skyrocketed. Uh, so I think that's, that's the type of issue that will play. I don't really think that this, this U.S. decision um, will have any type of impact on, uh, on the election. I, I really don't foresee that. One last area I'd like to talk about, and that is you, you wrote an article last week for the, the National Interest, and you, uh, the headline of the article you wrote said the next India-Pakistan crisis will be worse. Now, that headline uh, is interesting to me because it uh, indicates that there will be <laughs> another crisis, which I think uh, you're, you're certainly a firm believer in. But explain to us why you think it will be worse. Right. It's a nice uplifting headline for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sure is. I, well, I, I know being a, an old journalist that, that writers don't write headlines, so <laughs> you don't have to take credit for it. 
Right, exactly. Uh, uh, but at any rate, you know, so why do I say that um, you know, the next India-Pakistan crisis will be worse? Well, several factors here. Um, one, the, the major sort of driving forces of this most recent crisis have not been eliminated um, after, the, after the crisis. I mean, basically, the root of the issue is that, um, you know, India is unhappy about uh, terrorists that stage attacks in India and have a presence in Pakistan. You know, that's still a reality. Those terror that's groups are still line, there. Right. Bottom line, yeah, exactly. And the Kashmir issue, um, nothing has changed with that. And Pakistan is very unhappy about how India is, is not willing to discuss it, and it's also unhappy about how India cracks down viciously against um, uh, these young uh, Kashmiris. Uh, so there's that, first of all. Uh, and then it, the, the other factor is that, um, you know, new, new red lines were crossed in this most recent crisis. Uh, you know, as I said in, in the article, uh, both India and Pakistan demonstrated that they're perfectly comfortable uh, using... Uh, military force under the nuclear umbrella in ways that they hadn't before. I mean, as I had said earlier, uh, you know, this this is really the first time that Indians and Pakistanis attacked each other with, with airstrikes in the nuclear uh, era. It's the first time since 1971 before there were the Indians and the Pakistanis had nuclear weapons. So basically what I'm saying is that since we now know that the two sides are perfectly comfortable trading airstrikes uh, in the event of a crisis, this means that when you have the next crisis, you can expect that not only would you have, uh, you know, these similar types of airstrikes, but they could, but you could have more than that. Uh, and I think that India, in an effort to try to deter Pakistan from providing support to these terror groups that stage attacks in India, India will be willing to up the ant in the next crisis. It will be willing to not just content itself to flying a few Air Force planes uh, into Pakistan and launching a few strikes. They, I imagine, would be content to launch several of those types of strikes. And when that happens, obviously, you know, Pakistan would be likely to respond with its own series of, of strikes, more robust than those in this last crisis. And basically, when that happens, you're going to climb up the escalation ladder. Uh, and the more you climb up the escalation ladder, the more you have to worry about the risk of a nuclear exchange. So the bottom line, when I say that the next crisis will be worse, the next crisis will bring us closer to a nuclear exchange. I'm not saying there's going to be a nuclear exchange, not at all, but... I think that the next crisis could take the two sides up the escalation ladder to a point of to a to a height that would be uh, much too high for comfort. <laughs> is, is the way I would leave it. One last question, and that is: we've talked a little bit about the United States' role in this area or lack thereof. Uh, what about other major powers? How about the, the the influence of China, if if any, or the or Russia, or or any of the other major? Uh, powers in the region? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, it's interesting that most most powers are fairly quiet. Um, I do think that many countries, uh, including the United States, quietly supported India's decision to retaliate um, after that, that attack in India administered Kashmir. But after that, you started to hear some, some pretty strong statements from uh, key players, including China, that called on the two sides to basically uh, de-escalate. Um, what was striking, and certainly the Indian press made a big deal out of this, is that um, many countries have come out very vociferously uh, 
issuing statements calling on Pakistan to deal with this terrorism problem more. There have not been many countries that have come out and, you know, implored the world to focus more attention on the Kashmir issue. There hasn't been much of that uh, at all. So, but, you know, during the actual crisis itself, um, I expect that the United States probably played some sort of role in trying to get the two sides to de-escalate, and I imagine that the U.S. had a hand in urging the Pakistanis to agree to release that Indian pilot, thereby leading to a, to the de-escalation. I don't think any other countries played any type of, of major role, um, but yeah, I think that things hadn't didn't really get to a critical enough point that you had to um, wonder why there would not have been more countries um, or groups like the UN getting involved. But you know, go back to what happened after India launched its retaliatory strike on Pakistan. Pakistan launched its retaliatory strike. After Pakistan launched its strike, uh, that's when the crisis was at its most serious point. And I think that if India had responded with another strike after that, that's when you would have had to worry about an actual war breaking out. And that's when I think you would have had more um, interventions, diplomatic interventions by countries other than the United States. I imagine that's when the UN would have got involved, perhaps China would have. But, you know, at the end of the day, there aren't that many countries that are seen by both India and Pakistan as suitable and neutral mediators. China, you know, as you know, has a very deep rivalry with India. India right. does not view China as a helpful interlocutor. And of course, China is, is very close to Pakistan. It's one of Pakistan's closest friends. Michael, thank you so much for your time and trying to uh, get us out of the weeds on this and to really see the importance of, of, of these countries and, and the conflict. I hope, uh, hope nothing does break out, but if something breaks out in the future, I hope we can reach back to you for some clarification. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. And I would, it would be unfortunate if the only reason we talk the next time is because something horrible is happening in, in the subcontinent. But uh, <laughs> always happy to, uh, to connect. Today, we've been talking with Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington. We talked about the recent conflict between Pakistan and India and what it might mean for the United States. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets.